You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. In my life as a professor, I sometimes hear people oppose college education to vocational education, and I know basically what they're talking about. In vocational education, as folks tend to talk about things, people learn to take on roles like auto mechanic or childcare worker or computer programmer and those kinds of things rather than going to school to be lawyers or middle managers or physicians or engineers. But vocation, I'm sure some of you listeners will remind me, derives from a Latin verb meaning to call and vocation can and should also mean a kind of life to which God calls us, something that includes and expands beyond the workday to include our lives in all kinds of communities. Jesus, of course, calls a gathered people to a particular kind of life, and that's the matter of Charles Moore's recent book, Following the Call, an exploration of the compelling and daunting and complicated and straightforward call that the faithful hear whenever we hear the Sermon on the Mount read. Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to have Charles on the show to talk about this peculiar call. Charles, welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles. Thank you so much, Nathan. Uh, it's a pleasure to join you. So let's start uh, with my confessing sins. Instead of reading this book a week at a time over a calendar year with friends over dinner, I read it alone in the course of a few days. So tell me how I missed the whole point of the book. Well, you did a pretty good job of missing the point of the book, um, uh, but uh, I, I think you had a reason for that. Um, and uh, I'll just um, say that, uh, of course, this, this book can be dipped into um, in a number of different ways, individually, in small groups, um, in other contexts. But the, the book was designed um, to um, enable a fellowship of people, small or bigger, to um, consider what it might look like to live out the Sermon on the Mount together, corporately. And uh, it's divided into 52 chapters for a purpose, um, a chapter a week. Um, it's not that the Sermon on the Mount shouldn't be re uh, read in one sitting and not that um, my book couldn't be read in a few days, but um, it's, it, it was designed to uh, help us to stop uh, and reconsider maybe words that we have become over familiar with and have lost their impact on us. Um, we have to remember that, that the Sermon on the Mount is not strictly speaking a sermon. Um, scholars pretty much agree that this is a collection of sayings that Jesus repeated throughout his ministry in different contexts. And Matthew put them together for a reason. Um, so that um, they would be absorbed, um, possibly even memorized um, as a basis of catechesis and formation and teaching. And uh, uh, it's not meant to just be listened to in one sitting, but to go through um, carefully. And, um, and that's why um, I designed the book to help um, fellow seekers and disciples um, not only to go slowly, but reflectively and ask, what does this mean what, for us today? How do we live this out? And to do so in a communal context. Um, the, the readings are not a commentary, uh, exegesis. They're, they're existential in nature and leave us, by and large, with a decision. How will I let uh, what Jesus is saying to us impact 
my life personally, but our lives together. Uh, and, and so that, that, that's uh, the, the nature of the book, and I think it reflects the nature of the Sermon on the Mount. And just to follow up on that literary context a little bit, I mean, it's not a coincidence and it's not a, uh, unimportant that Matthew has Jesus deliver these on top of a mountain. Uh, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a fairly clear literary uh, callback to Moses on top of Mount Sinai. And, you know, just like the Sermon on the Mount, I think that uh, we can certainly think about the Torah as something that, you know, it's, it's both true that you can read it in a few hours. It's much longer than the Sermon on the Mount, obviously, uh, but that you also should, and in fact, the Torah itself calls on the people of Israel uh, to repeat it, you know, a saying at a time, especially in instructing the young. So I, that, that's definitely a, a point well taken. And, and you know, uh, it's interesting because when I have taught the Gospel of Matthew, I've usually made a point of reading the gospel, the uh, Sermon on the Mount all in one throw, just so people can hear all the parts together. And uh, you're, you're making me reconsider that. I'm, I'm still going to keep doing that, but I think I'll add the other way too. No, and, well, and I think that's fair because Matthew um, put it um, together in, in such a way that there is um, the impact of the whole, which can be greater than the sum of the parts. There is a cohesion, a trajectory in um, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and, and so that's, that's fair. But going back to Moses, uh, you know, the Ten Commandments uh, were one thing, but uh, it took years for Moses to instruct the people in the way of what the Ten Commandments were all about. And that's what the Torah is. So um, uh, re regardless, um, at least um, this, this book um, was designed for us to slow down. Um, and, um, and I, I think in our soundbite age, our, um, when, when we're just um, going a thousand miles an hour, uh, I, I feel like we need to stop. And, and notice that Jesus uh, set aside the disciples from the warp and whiff of life, at least in this setting. Um, he sat down to teach. Um, so it, it, it meant to um, keep and, and um, our attention fully engaged. Very good. I want to focus on one more phrase from your introduction before we start getting into some of the readings, and that is kingdom of God. And, you know, one common way to regard kingdom of God when people come across that phrase in uh, Mark and Luke or when they see kingdom of heaven in Matthew is to think about it in terms of an afterlife. But I think that you point out very uh, rightly and in a way that is much needed that the kingdom of God is not a place where the dead people go, but it's an invitation to devotion for the living. So how does this kind of approach to Matthew, you know, five to seven, the Sermon on the Mount, how does it improve on the ways that people tend to read that phrase, especially in the Gospel of Matthew? Well, I like to think of the Sermon on the Mount as the constitution of the kingdom, uh, and the kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God made manifest here and now in every dimension of life. Um, another way of putting it, it is the presence of God's future in our midst. And so what does it mean to live in the light of the presence of God's future, which is all encompassing? It's, it's totalistic. Um, his rule and reign is meant to encompass and penetrate, uh, penetrate every aspect of our life. Right, right before the um, Matthew 5, 
uh, it's very clear. It says Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogue, preaching the good news of the kingdom. And at the end, um, after Matthew 7, uh, in Matthew 9, um, Matthew summarizes yet again, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom. Well, what is this good news? Well, part of it is the healing ministry that he came to um, perform. Uh, but part of it is, this is how, um, this is what it's like to live in the fullness of God's rule and reign. Um, th this is uh, what human flourishing is, um, is like when God is Lord in our lives. Um, so it, this helps us to see that the, the, the Sermon on the Mount isn't just a, uh, a, a bunch of tidbits of wisdom. Um, they are, they're meant to form us into a kind of people that reflect um, the Lordship of, of Christ. Um, so it's um, really actually meant to be embodied um, as a people, um, politically, economically, relationally, socially. Um, these are the, this is a picture of what, what God's politics and economics um, his new order is like. This gets us beyond um, this idea that we have to become heroic spiritual um, figures and trying to emulate um, the, the sermon individualistically. Rather, it's, it, um, it's, it's a picture of what we together as his people who reflect his kingdom um, can be like. Very good. Listeners, I want to pause for a moment and say that this book consists of uh, 52 chapters, as Charles has already said, uh, one for each week of the calendar year, and most of the sections feature more than one reading. So what you're getting in this hour uh, is a sample of the parts that I decided to talk about with Charles today because it's my show and not yours. But uh, listeners, you need to go get this book and find your own favorites among here because uh, odds are you're going to find some that challenge you uh, in ways that you're not going to hear about on today's show. All right, with that out of the way, I'll confess that Christoph Blumhart's essay, uh, when he enjoins us to live according to the heart, not the head, uh, I made, you know, I, I put my hand over the pocket where I keep my wallet. Uh, when I hear people say, uh, you know, don't approach this with your head, approach it with your heart, I get suspicious because uh, in my history, that's usually been a preface to an idea that they don't want to have to defend. So once again, Charles, tell me how I've taken that entirely wrong. Well, I don't know if you've taken it entirely wrong, but I think the point that Bloomhart um, is making um, in his um, essay called Good News is that um, the Sermon on the Mount is not for academic study and intellectuals. Um, the, the kingdom of God belongs to those who are poor in spirit, who are bankrupt, who come as beggars before God, not know-it-alls who are ready to examine and, and um, evaluate and judge what the master came to teach. Um, it's for those who are bereft of what it's like to really truly live out the will of God. And in that sense, he says, um, it's for those who are uh, ready to live 
according to their hearts. It doesn't mean they can't use their heads, of course, um, but to live out the essence, um, the meaning of what Jesus said um, from their hearts. Um, I, I think um, this is important because this is what wisdom literature is about. Um, wisdom isn't just to make us smart. It, um, wisdom is to help us to live um, well, um, to live rightly, um, to live um, fruitfully on, on this earth. Um, you know, you can analyze Jesus's words to death, and the Sermon on the Mount has been analyzed to oblivion, where you wonder what it means, let alone uh, whether you could live it out. Um, but according to the way of Jesus, um, obedience trumps understanding. In fact, obedience and childlike, simple, trustful obedience actually leads to understanding. Otherwise, we can be paralyzed by a bunch of our what-ifs, and, and, uh, um, and instead of simply moving in the direction and the trajectory of what Jesus is teaching, uh, we end up um, suspended um, in uh, a bunch of analysis. Um, you know, Jesus uh, wanted followers. Um, this is about apprenticeship. So watch and then do, and then you will understand. Um, and, and, and this is important because Jesus himself is the embodiment of the Sermon on the Mount. He, he came not uh, to call us to follow a teaching, but to follow, follow him, the teacher, um, and when we follow him and watch and do, then we'll begin to understand the marvelous wisdom and insight um, that is contained in the Sermon on the Mount. Very good. I'll confess one of my favorite uh, early readings in this book uh, comes from Virginia Stem Owens. And it's one of my favorites because I also teach writing at a small college. Uh, and in fact, that's what I was doing just before I jumped on to record today is teaching writing class. Uh, and she tells a story that I really loved about teaching the Sermon on the Mount as a, uh, as a reading to spur discussion in a college freshman writing class. So what does she discover there about the offense that the words of Jesus still bring? Well, you know, um, she gives this assignment to her students to read the Sermon on the Mount and write, write a reflective essay and they're all over the place with their reflections, and most of them betray the fact that they have no background in biblical literacy, um, which she thought um, was rather odd because where she was teaching at the time was in the Bible Belt. Um, but um, then she kind of con she concludes this um, in one of the essays, um, or actually several, who took offense at what Jesus said. Um, she says, the Bible remains offensive to honest, ignorant ears, just as it was in the first century. And she actually kind of found that hopeful in a day of biblical illiteracy, uh, because what this means is that we can't just rely on a widespread cultural Christianity, which makes us think that we're familiar enough with, uh, with what Christ has said, but don't really actually respond um, and sit up and pay attention to what he has to say. Um, so uh, Jesus's words don't make sense to the natural um, fallen human condition. Uh, condition. Um, and they're not meant to um, be understood 
um, readily. Uh, they should have a shock value, um, a uh, puzzlement. It, it should provoke us uh, and stop us. And any honest reading will do that. Unfortunately, we've so um, spiritualized, sentimentalized, um, poeticalized uh, Jesus's words, the Beatitudes, the um, or the Lord's Prayer, that um, we just fall asleep uh, amidst reading them um, and listening to them. Uh, so I, I think um, what she discovered was um, maybe we're actually in a ripe time in a, an increasing secular age for the Sermon on the Mount to actually be taken more seriously, even if it causes offense. I want to press down on that a little bit more because I one of the phrases that you just now used, you know, uh, the uh, the natural human heart, uh, you know, one of the, I guess, central tenets of my own sort of anthropology, if you will, is that human beings are always contingent. So we're always in some kind of relationship to the ideas and the powers and the uh, expectations that surround us. Uh, you know, I mean, this business that you talked about, and I think you're absolutely right that, you know, uh, our, I say our students, I don't know if you teach freshman writing or not. If you do, welcome, brother. If not, I'll, I'll call us we anyway. All right. But good. our I'm students, freshman, but not freshman writing. Okay. Yeah. Very good. Very good. <laughs> um, but our students, uh, I think it's interesting because they haven't even had a chance to sentimentalize what Jesus said. Uh, so, I mean, it, it is very interesting to see how they respond to it, uh, precisely because they are encountering it not as something they've been inoculated against, but as a genuinely new word in the world. Um, I mean, has that been your, your experience? Because, I mean, I'm, I'm teaching students at an evangelical college in North Georgia, where most of them have had intro to Bible before they get to me, and they still get shocked at what's in the Bible. Well, I think that's that's wonderful, and it doesn't surprise me, especially with the Sermon on the Mount. Um, you, you know, this this book, the the readings, um, the writings that I uh, collected, many of which are, are, are ones that I've um, had in my own file for many years, and and that have helped me along the way. The, the more I talked about the Sermon on the Mount with fellow Christians, uh, whatever uh, students or otherwise, the more nervous they became, um, and it would be readily dismissed. Well, you know, you can't take Jesus literally, or, uh, you know, you can't apply this um, to society, or uh, this is only realistic um, when the kingdom finally comes. Um, there's a, a bunch of outs, um, and that tells me that um, we either are purposely buffering on the Sermon on the Mount, so it doesn't have this kind of um, uh, 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 alarm and offense, um, or we simply um, uh, are content with a kind of Christianity uh, that is cultural, um, uh, societal, and uh, are not really interested in the radical nature of Jesus's teachings. So I don't think it's unique to even freshmen writing uh, about um, the Sermon on the Mount or listening. I, I think it's uh, somewhat prevalent, um, uh, uh, much further afield. Very good. I want to talk a little bit about some of the readings from the Beatitudes. And one of them, uh, John Deere, uh, and we're talking about the anti-war activist, not the tractor guy. 
He calls on Christians to stop referring to their wars as peacekeeping, which I absolutely loved. But then just a couple pages later, uh, Thomas Merton in another reading calls on the anti-war activists not to hate the war makers, but to hate their own inner disorder. So, I mean, these are readings that stand in some kind of interesting tension. How do these relate readings relate to each other as we Christians think about this particular beatitude? Um, I think that, uh, you know, I never quite um, saw these as juxtaposed, but I can understand uh, how you can um, read these, um, you know, Merton versus Deer in some kind of tension. Um, in my own mind, uh, war makers is not the same thing as war making. Uh, the Apostle Paul said that, that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Um, and so I think that um, John Deere is right that uh, we, we uh, declare war against war um, and war making and the spirit of war and the institutions of war, the, the systems that bring about um, the loss of life um, through war. Uh, that does not mean that we can go around hating um, war makers, um, the, uh, those um, people in the military, um, the, uh, because um, they, they are created in the image of God. And um, it's, it's very easy to demonize um, the others who may participate. And if we're honest, we're all in some way complicit in the war machine, um, whether it's through um, the, our capitalistic endeavors and uh, our consumer lifestyles, um, the way we do and don't vote or, what, or whatnot. Um, so you can't just uh, point the finger um, at people over there and um, hate them. Um, what Merton, I think, was trying to do is before you go on a crusade against the systems um, that breed war, look at what is inside you um, that um, causes war. Um, if you love peace, he says, then hate injustice, hate tyranny, hate greed, but hate these things in yourself first, not in another. Um, you know, I had a very interesting experience early on in my life. Uh, I was protesting um, nuclear weapons um, at a munitions site um, outside of um, Denver. And at the same time, um, there were a bunch of people um, protesting against abortion and the vitriol and the hate and the words exchanged between the two groups. I could, I, I just felt in myself, how, how does this lead for peace? How does this lead for, uh, to life if there's so much hate-filled speech? And, um, and then I had to stop and, and look at my own life and see where the seeds of war were inside me. And, and this is, I mean, it is a radical message, I mean, in our moment that puts a new premium, I think, on partisan activism, uh, on defeating the other side, right? Uh, right. I mean, I, I'll confess, I mean, uh, you know, I, I dropped off of Twitter about, how long ago has it been now? About 18 months ago now, and I've never once regretted it. But if you posted something like this from Merton on Twitter, uh, immediately you would get accused of, you know, objectively being in favor of the oppressors because you're saying that, uh, 
the problem lies within yourself rather than in the oppression. Right. Yeah. And, you know, if you read it carefully enough, he says, hate these things in yourself first. Yep. It doesn't stay there. It, it doesn't mean you can't hit, um, hate the, the systems and the structures that the forces um, that um, lead into into war, but you're right. Um, fortunately, I've I am I've never um, been tempted to to get on Twitter, so I have not had to struggle. Um, and with already, that. you show your wisdom. No, I don't know if it's <laughs> wisdom or fear or lack of uh, interest or inadequacy or whatnot. Um, but you know, this is all over. You know, um, hate despisal, anger, uh, uh, de demonizing the other, this, this sells. And this is what much of social media, um, sadly, is, is based on and is fueled by. And this does not help us to be the peacemakers that um, Jesus calls us to, to be. Well, let's talk about a different kind of trouble that comes, because uh, in the same Beatitudes that praise the peacemaker, uh, Jesus also blesses those who are persecuted, and persecution comes out of trouble. And uh, a while back, uh, you know, my fellow podcaster Danny Anderson and I, you've been on his show as well, uh, we were on Sectarian Review, and we talked about a uh, plow press collection of Oscar Romero's writings. So I know the Archbishop has the goods when we wonder what persecution looks like in a Cold War setting. Uh, so talk a little bit about uh, his selection from this book. Uh, I mean, what does he add? What does he confront us with? I'll put it that way when it comes to being persecuted for the sake of righteousness. I think in essence, um, well, he says a church that does not provoke crisis, a gospel that does not disturb, a word that does not rankle, a word of God that does not touch the concrete sin of the society in which it is being proclaimed. What kind of gospel is that? And I would want to just um, put that in the in a corporate context. A church that does this, what kind of church is that? Uh, I don't think Jesus ever taught us to go looking around purposely to be persecuted. He just simply said, if you are who you claim to be, if you are one of my followers, uh, you will be salt, you will be light, and you will get reactions. Those who dwell in the darkness, uh, don't immediately respond to the light. Um, and, and salt um, is something that doesn't just add flavor, but it stings. Um, and so I guess what, what he's trying to, to remind us of is let's, um, or not remind us of, I think he challenges us to get to the core of the gospel. It, the gospel is good news. Um, to those who are oppressed, to those who are poor, to those who are marginalized. It's bad news for those who are in power, uh, those who have the wealth. And um, we tend to sugarcoat the gospel so um, those who have the power and those who have the wealth are not offended. And, uh, you know, Jesus didn't get crucified because he just um, taught a bunch of encouraging, edifying, inspiring spiritual truths that, that uplifted the soul. He, he confronted injustice. He confronted unrighteousness um, and the lack of peace in this world and in our hearts. Um, so I guess the challenge is, do we live in such a way that people um, notice? 
where people might um, be alarmed or be taken aback. And this certainly happened with the earliest Christians who were accused of falsely of all kinds of things. But they were accused falsely of all kinds of things because they lived distinct, uh, a distinct life. Uh, uh, they, they were a part of a contrast um, community. Um, and uh, many were either threatened um, or curious by that. Um, today, our Christianity, um, you know, I, I don't think when people look at the church, they conclude that um, this is a people that live by the Sermon on the Mount. I think they, they conclude that this is a people that, that lives by uh, a, a set of values that I think um, in the end are, are foreign to the way of Christ. I think that's true. I think that's true. I want to turn from the Beatitudes and look at some of the commandments. So the sections on lust and divorce fascinated me because on one hand, Johann Christoph Arnold calls for open and strident teaching against divorce when so many of our modern American norms, including inside of churches, treat it as normally as we would ch a change of career or, you know, moving from one town to another. And then, you know, Francis Chan, uh, he advocates for keeping away from private meetings with women. And of course, what I immediately thought of is, is all of the jokes and, you know, all of the scorn that was poured out on, you know, a vice president who, you know, I have, I have opinions about to be sure, uh, who also wouldn't take such meetings. So here's my question. I mean, what kind of offense to go back to the Romero question and what kind of discipleship are these sections of the book aiming for? Yeah. Um, well, you know, at, at rock bottom, um, I think such things as loyalty, uh, honesty, um, integrity, um, in the sexual sphere, um, it, it comes down to um, Jesus protesting the objectification of another human being. Um, you know, when, when we lust, we, we turn the other into an object of our desire to consume. They, no, they are no longer a soul created in the image of God. Um, they are a means to an end. Um, and that's certainly um, antithetical to um, who we are as God's image bearers um, and why Jesus came. Uh, I, th I think Jesus is also getting at um, or is protesting um, the exploitation and oppression of women uh, with, with the double standard um, um, amongst the Pharisees and the scribes who you, uh, we're basically finding loopholes or interpretive uh, um, schemes in which to excuse their own lust. Um, and uh, in the end, women are victimized um, in the process. Um, and I think wherever there is victimization, um, especially um, here in, when it comes to um, the, the, the realm of sex, uh, Jesus, um, uh, uh, words need to be taken very seriously, very strictly. He, he didn't come to um, utter a law. You, you can't make a law against lust. What he was trying to do is uh, urge that actually there's a promise. Um, when the kingdom breaks in, you don't have to be governed by lust. Uh, do everything you can to avoid 
putting yourself in situations where your propensity to lust would would get the better of you and and then you would end up taking advantage um, of another um, so uh, I, I think when when it comes to the consuming and objectification of others um, when it comes to minimalizing temptation um, following Jesus um, enables us to experience victory in an otherwise, um, you know, ongoing battle that, that all of us face. So I think that's the spirit in which I think both writings, um, you know, stay true to the covenant, uh, the, the covenant that you make with another um, is actually God's gift to us. Uh, don't abuse it. Um, don't um, uh, mock it. Um, and in, in, in all the while, um, make sure that you treat each person with the dignity and the worth that they have as, as image bearers of God. Very good. I, I want to follow up on that. And, and first of all, I'll just go ahead and say that, you know, this book is published in 2021. So it's definitely a, a recent modern uh, call to recent modern people. I also teach medieval literature professionally. <laughs> so, you know, one really striking difference in the way that Augustine and Dante and other, you know, whether you want to call them ancient or medieval writers think about lust is that they really focus on the element of being desired as well as desiring the body. Um, you know, so, I mean, you look at, you know, Augustine's examination of his own lust and confessions. You look at Dante's stories of lust in Inferno. Uh, and in Purgatorio, I shouldn't forget Purgatorio, and mm -hmm. they are stories about moments where you fall victim to someone's desiring you even more than falling victim to your desiring another person. And I think of, you know, not necessarily stories about pornography, which really does objectify the other body, but, you know, stories about adultery in modern narratives. There's yeah. almost some, there's almost always some element of you know, the person who promised to desire me until we die no longer does. And therefore I've turned to someone who does. Um, I mean, I, and there should be a question in here because this is supposed to be an interview, but I'm just kind of working this out in my head because you made me yeah. think of it. Uh, you know, to what extent do you think that, you know, Jesus has both sides of that, you know, that sin that we called lust in mind? And to what extent, I mean, is he focusing mainly on the desire for the other body. Yeah. Uh, I, and I realize I, we're trying to make a, an essay out of one verse, but you know, I, 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 I went to seminary. I did this all the time. <laughs> right. Well, you know, Jesus said in the, in the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Now, I guess the real issue is, do we want to see God? Do we want to see God in the other? Right, right. Or do, or do we want to see um, our ourselves and our own wants and desires in the other? And um, so I think... Oh, and now uh, you're bringing Milton into it too. That's good. Keep rolling. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I, I think that um, uh, Jesus is calling us to something higher that does not demean the fact that we are embodied people. Um with um, uh, desires, but he, he wants to relativize that to something higher, 
what do we want to further most in this life? He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then all these other things will be given and added unto you. So, so where is our deepest uh, our, uh, heart's desire? Uh, what is it that um, actually we are living for? Um, for ourselves, um, for our own betterment, um, for our own kingdom, um, or for, for God's. And, and, and I think it's, this is what he's trying to, to get at, to, um, to lead us back to. It's, it's not just some Herculean self-discipline that you control the passions so that they won't control you, and then therefore you can live well. So this Although is not stoicism. Here. It's not stoicism, and, and it's not self-help, um, but it is a life that actually honors the, the rule of God and the blessings that follow when, when God um, is at the center of all things. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's not don't, don't, don't. Actually, these are promises um, that, that are embedded in, in the Sermon on the Mount um, that, uh, and promises that lead to uh, a, a life of true flourishing, true well-being, uh, shalom, um, uh, the, the peace that um, Jesus came to bring on this earth. Very good, very good. The section that meditates on turning the other cheek uh, has one image that is haunting to me ever since I read it, and that is Giovanni Papini's notion that turning the cheek amputates part of the soul. Uh, so, I mean, we can talk about turning the cheek in general, to be sure, but say something about that image, because that uh, I, I've never thought about turning the other cheek as amputating part of the soul. What does that mean? Yeah, um, it's, you know, this is actually a phenomenal essay on, on non-resistance. Um, and uh, uh, I, I think really what, what he's trying to do here is that when we respond in kind to someone who's committed a wrong against us, we perpetuate the cycle of wrongdoing. And to um, break the cycle, we, we need to be willing to have part of our souls amputated. What does that mean? That we must rid ourselves of all that which gives rise to violence in the first place. Um, our instinctual notion of retributive justice, of getting even, that needs to be um, uh, cut out. Um, even our um, uh, assumed um, uh, notions of uh, self-preservation at all costs, this needs to be cut out of us. Otherwise, the cycle of violence um, of tit-for-tat justice um, will uh, perpetuate and, and, and violence begets more violence. Um, so for us to break that cycle, I think we, we have to um, uh, allow ourselves to be um, pruned um, and cut away um, so that we will not respond in kind, but actually do what seems to be the opposite, Jesus said, to love your enemy, right? To pray for those who persecute, 
to do good unto them. This is opposite of our uh, fallen human natures. Um, but um, this is the way that um, God's perfection um, is realized and manifested on, on earth. So I think that's the kind of amputation, uh, cutting out that which actually in the end destroys. Right. And, and what strikes me about it, and like I said, what haunts me about it is that he is just so brutally honest that, I don't know what verb to use here, but letting Jesus take away that option, right? I'm trying to avoid cutting metaphors. Uh, yeah. <laughs> letting yeah. Jesus take away that option really does feel like losing a part of your body. Yeah, it's, it's uh, maybe exercising the demons that are in, within us, um, the things that um, lead to destruction. Um, you know, we can talk about, let's say, our ego, um, our demand of being right uh, and um, recognizes being right, um, you know, uh, various other things. Um, so in this way, uh, it's... You know, um, the disciples later, not in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus talks about, um, you know, leaving everything, um, forsaking all, getting rid of your possessions, giving them away the, uh, to the poor and so forth. Um, and the disciples are alarmed um, because Jesus said, unless you do this, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And he says, well, who then can enter the kingdom of God? You know, um, and Jesus said, well, uh, with man, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So this should turn us um, not into a deeper self-brooding and self-determination out of sheer willpower. We're going to cut these things out of ourself. We fall on our knees um, before the for God to actually sanctify us, to, to cleanse us, to, to prune us of all that which is dead and leads to death. Very good. I want to hear you talk about another pair of readings that I found tension in when it comes to prayer. So on page 184, uh, Elton Trueblood, who was a Quaker teacher, warns against memorizing prayers because prayers might become empty repetition if you memorize them. And then on the next two pages of the book, Pope Benedict XVI, who was, you know, the Pope, uh, he says that memorizing prayers handed down through the generations keeps our prayers from becoming mere reflections of ourselves and extensions of our ego. So let me ask you this. I mean, since we're talking about practices and communities and conversations, when you have had people read these side by side, because they're right there next to each other in the book, uh, how have the ensuing conversations unfolded? Well, I, I wish I could say um... Uh, lots of people are reading this book. There's a lot of groups around the country, um, including Zoom groups and so forth. Uh, I would love to, in a way, be a fly on the wall. Um, and I know that um, people from a, a, the broad Christian tradition are reading this book. Um, I come from a more Anabaptist tradition. Um, and so we um, rely less on ritual um, and uh, liturgy and this kind of thing. Uh, we don't generally repeat the Lord's Prayer. Um, we, we occasionally do. Um, uh, other traditions, it's part and parcel. Um, it's food, um, daily food. Um, so um, I put these two together because I think there's truths to both. 
I don't think memorizing in itself a prayer um, necessarily leads to empty repetition. Um, if we memorize a prayer in order that we might be able to repeat it, um, uh, then I think there's a danger. Now, that, that might sound like I'm talking out of two sides of my mouth. Um, I've memorized a lot of things so that um, uh, somehow uh, I can pull from them, um, recall them, but not to repeat them. Um, and so I, I think there's a role for memorizing the Beatitudes or the, uh, the Lord's Prayer and so forth. Um, but I, I think what Jesus is getting at is this is the kind of prayer um, that um, is befitting uh, life in the kingdom. In, fact, in, in Luke, uh, the disciples ask him, teach us how to pray, not what to pray. How? Well, the Lord's Prayer covers every dimension of life, uh, if you really think about it. And, and, and I have quite a long section on the Lord's Prayer in the book. Um, so the, the Lord's Prayer teaches us um, the kind of prayers that uh, should engage us, um, regardless of whether it's memorized or not, to mindlessly repeat the prayer, let alone the Sermon on the Mount, which, by the way, I've had my students over the years as one of their assignments to memorize the Sermon on the Mount. Um, do I expect uh, a month later or a year later for them to be able to repeat it um, verbatim? No, uh, but I wanted it to be able to seep into their lives and that they could become enough familiar with it um, and recall um, the various sections of the Sermon on the Mount when they were in situations um, that um, it would be helpful to, to re recall Jesus's words. Um, so the other thing I guess I would say is, um, you know, I'm not Catholic. I, I'm not from a tradition that would have the Sermon on the Mount at every worship service or on a regular basis. But this is a corporate prayer. It's not just an individual, you know, um, our Father uh, who is in heaven, uh, give us this day. It's, it's a corporate prayer. Um, what the readings challenge us to do is what does it mean to be an answer to that corporate prayer corporately? What does it mean to live out the meaning of this prayer together? That to me is where we should put our energies, not whether we are able to repeat it in perfect unison or how often we repeat it um, uh, verbally, but are we living it out? And again, if, if, the unbelieving world were to look at our lives and then read the Lord's Prayer, um, they would be able to conclude, oh, those people live by that prayer. All right. All right. Well, we are kind of rushing towards the end of Matthew 7 here, and I apologize for that. But I want our listeners to hear about one of the last readings uh, in which Soren Kierkegaard, and pardon my uh, Danish pronunciation there, reminds us of two things. One, that Christ calls for imitators, not admirers, and two, that imitating Christ is really quite dangerous in Christendom. So in our own American moment, what is one particular danger of imitating Christ? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's I, I was thinking about that because, uh, you know, Kierkegaard wrote in Denmark, and, and it was in a period of European history that 
was, um, it could be, um, how do I say this? Um, it was in the context of uh, a Christendom where, where the whole culture um, was um, conceived in um, and um, congruent with uh, a notion of Christianity and, and Christian values. Now, America is much more pluralistic, secularistic um, than his day. Um, but that said, if, if, if we want to be imitators and followers of Jesus, not just admirers, I, I think one thing that Kierkegaard might say, and this may sound um, uh, contradictory to his life's project, um, uh, which pitted the individual against the crowd. Uh, but I think he would harp on the uh, idols of personal autonomy and self-sufficiency. Um, uh, these are the gods, two, two gods of this age, um, and we have Christianized them. Um, so we have a hyper-individualistic uh, understanding of the gospel, of um, reading the Bible, of Christian faith, um, and it excludes any need for others. Um, this idea of self-sufficiency. I have my Bible. Um, I have my God. Um, I can understand the Bible um, without others, um, and, and I, I think, um, you know, Kierkegaard um, was a prophet, and, and uh, his words serve as a corrective. Uh, I think he might um, uh, push back on the hyper-individualized notions of freedom, um, autonomy, and self-sufficiency. All right, all right. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and say, because it needs said, that uh, the reason I love talking to Anabaptists is they can turn even Kierkegaard into a communitarian. Uh, but second of all, uh, you know, I, I really do think that, you know, uh, it is a different kind of Christendom that we live in in the United States than Kierkegaard's Denmark. I'm, I'm, ne I'm never going to deny that. But, you know, I, I guess a couple of the features that, you know, I always come back to, one is that, you know, our public figures are always free and usually get rewarded for making reference to their Christian piety. And number two, uh, you know, I mean, at least in the parts of the country I've lived in, and I'll, I'll go ahead and, you know, confess that I've, I've split my time between the Midwest and the South, uh, you know, you can say that's not a very Christian thing to do, and it still means something. So, you know, those are, uh, those are some things that occur to me there. Yeah. Um, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I, I, I hear what you're saying. Um, there is a civil religion still in this country uh, mm -hmm. that relies on power, uh, baptizes power, and yeah. is utilitarian and uses God as a means to uh, a temporal end. And surely um, Kierkegaard would speak against that um, very much. I, I think he would have some choice words, maybe uh, less about the crowd, but about the monolithic nature of consumerism how we um, basically, our spirituality is such that we, we, we consume spiritual uh, truths, we consume God um, uh, to, the, uh, to, a, um, to meet our tastes, 
and so forth. There, there's a lot of things I think he would speak to, but the bottom line, I think he would still say, um, uh, you can call Jesus Lord, Lord, but if you do not do what he says, um, then uh, you cannot enter the kingdom. And I think Kierkegaard was, was very adamant about um, uh, living uh, the life-like, uh, the, the Christ-like life, um, not just hearing and listening um, and speaking it, but actually living it. Very good. We're getting towards the end of our talk, so I want to ask a, a question about the, the book globally as the whole collection. Uh, one of the features of this collection that I found really commendable is that it presents very different readings of the same text in the same volume without really stacking the deck in either one's favor. So in addition to the pairings that I've already talked about, I mean, some of these texts treat the teachings of Jesus as kind of natural outworkings of human psychology, things that we discover about ourselves that were always true of our nature, but we didn't know it. But then others, you know, sometimes right across the page, present Jesus' sermon as ways of life that are only possible when the particular movement of the Holy Spirit in the worshiping community has transformed the worshipers in ways that transcend our nature. And likewise, some of the readings seem quite confident that living the Christ life will be contagious and appealing and bring our neighbors to a new way of life. But then others, sometimes right across the page, remind us that the one who best lived the Christ life, and of course that's Jesus of Nazareth, ended up getting executed as an insurgent as a result. Am I getting your project right? If not, correct me, because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really uh, appreciating this. And if I'm appreciating an illusion, I want to know it. But if I am right, what benefits might come to those who engage such a pluralistic collection? Well, you got it right. Uh, I really appreciate that. You know, I, I could not have said it any better. And you really uh, were able to capture the various dimensions that um, come to fore from the, the wide spectrum of readings. You know, I, I chose a wide spectrum from the greater Christian tradition, both in history and denominationally, because first of all, the Sermon on the Mount is, is the church's sermon. And I think any branch of Christianity that claims um, to have it, have it all or have enough um, dishonors the work of the spirit in history and in the world, uh, I, I think it's a form of hubris, um, of, of pride and self-righteousness. And, and so uh, I, I wanted people, as they read through this, to appreciate that um, from many different traditions, um, from different time periods, people have struggled um, to take seriously Jesus's um, Sermon on the Mount. Um, and uh, I think the readings do reflect these different perspectives. And I, but I also think it's because, you know, Jesus didn't sit down um, uh, in an armchair and just start uttering truths in abstraction. Um, he doesn't teach uh, from midair um, and from nowhere. Uh, Jesus is the uh, um, incarnation of, of God. Um, he was in time and in a place embodied and um, he faced many different situations. And so therefore, when he utters various sayings and commands 
um, and instructions, they were always situated in a particular moment, in a particular situation that may not be able to be immediately universalized. I, I do think that there are some universal gospel truths that come to fore um, from the sermon um, and from Jesus's life, but how they're applied, how they're lived out has to be um, looked at very situationally, very contextually. Um, and so, uh, I, and I, I, you see this even in the Gospels. Uh, Jesus later comes to um, the topic of marriage, divorce, and remarriage again, but in, in a different context where he's being tested or put to the test by the Pharisees. Um, he talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, judge not lest you be judged. Um, this comes out again in the publican and the Pharisee, um, uh, to uh, both worshiping at the temple, temple and the Pharisees, you know, thank, thank God that I'm not one of them. Um, he, he talks about treasures on earth versus treasures um, that last in, in heaven. Um, and you cannot worship both God and mammon. Well, this comes out again um, uh, in his encounter with the rich young ruler. Um, and what does that mean in that context? So I, I think that um, these various dimensions, facets that you highlight um, are there both in the sermon, in the readings in my book, uh, because Jesus um, lived in the present, in the now, in our history, and we need to um, discern uh, in every situation um, with his help through the Spirit, how to actually live out um, his life and let his life be lived out through us um, in the here and now today in the 21st century. Well, and I, and I think another thing that I would commend about this collection is that uh, it does rule out a certain kind of reading, right? I mean, the kind of reading that I would characterize as Jesus gives impossible commandments so that you just feel terrible about yourself and realize that you can never save yourself, but he doesn't actually expect you to keep any of it. You're not yeah. interested in that. No. But no. when it comes to, you know, what is the nature of these teachings? Uh, I mean, you really do put, I mean, you know, sort of the, uh, for lack of a better label, I mean, the progressive Protestant notion that this is drawing on something that is universal in human psychology. You lean on the Anabaptist tradition that says that uh, you have to be called away from what is natural to you so that you can be a witness to something that transcends nature. I mean, it, it's just all in here. And I mean, you know, like I said, uh, I can imagine this being just great discussion material precisely because of the pluralism. So, um, you know, like I said, listeners, definitely go out and get yourself this book. Yeah, I, and, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted this book to be read in a smaller group context, because, um, you know, having two or three or 10 people um, discussing a chapter, you might be surprised um, at nuances that come out because everyone's situation can be quite different. Um, and instead of uh, dismissing what Jesus has to say, because there isn't one absolute clear command that's readily and immediately applicable in every given situation, um, you discern together how the spirit and the essence and the intention of what Jesus is saying can be lived out in very real contexts now. Um, so I'm glad you picked that up. I'm going to save uh, uh, your thoughts um, uh, so I can better articulate for, for others um, what I was hoping 
um, the, the, the book would do. Very good. Very good. Well, Charles, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation. So in the spirit of hospitality, I'm going to let you have the last word. What do you want our listeners thinking about the Sermon on the Mount, Christian community, or whatever else as we head for the door? Well, maybe I'm idealistic. Um, you know, uh, when I became a Christian um, in my uh, late teens, uh, someone told me, uh, he said, Charles, you may be the only Bible anyone ever reads. And uh, um, it's a very individualistic notion. Um, but I really thought about that. Um, now, I think what Jesus might say in this context to his disciples who are the city on the hill, right? The salt of the earth, the light of the world. Um, he may say um, to his followers, his comrades, you together may be the only sermon a person may ever hear that comes from me. You are the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and I guess I want to just leave with the challenge that um, if, if this is not what we're about, if, if we cannot live out the Sermon on the Mount, and granted, we'll never do that perfectly individually or corporately, but if this is not what um, uh, drives us in our life together as fellow believers, in our corporate life especially, uh, then what are we representing? What are we communicating to the world? Um, uh, you know, the, what gets communicated is less verbal and more pictorial and uh, in, in terms of a life. And uh, so I hope that um, uh, those who read the book will be re-inspired to seek with others to, to live this out together and help each other to do that. Charles Moore, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thank you, Nathan. It's been a pleasure. Uh, I loved your questions and um, all the best to you in, in your work. Very good. Listeners, thank you for downloading and listening in. The book is Following the Call, Living the Sermon on the Mount Together from Plow Publishing. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.